Welcome to Dragon Talk. Let me do it one more time. Welcome. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Dragon Talk. On today, Thanksgiving here in the United States. Right now on Thanksgiving, instead of being with our families. We are here. We're here. Yeah, well, we're going to do our our families later. Right. Maybe. Mm. We'll see. Mm. Uh, But we have a very special guest uh, who's going to bring us something from history's D&D history past. So cool. There's ghosts there as well. Maybe even wraiths. Definitely skeletons. Definitely skeletons. Uh, His name is John Peterson, and he has dug up an archival pilot episode of a radio show. This is crazy. In D&D's past, made by TSR uh, in the 80s. He'll tell us the exact date, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, But as far as we know, it's never been uh, released before. Uh, So we're excited to... Until now. Until now, right? This is crazy. I know. Crazy, right? Yes. So we'll play that episode for you, and we'll talk to John uh, beforehand. Uh, but before that, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about some announcements? What's mm. going on, Shelly, with you? You said you were coughing. Yeah, got a little bit right. of the crud. Number one thing, you've you got some crud. You do, too. I've got some crud. That's number two. Ryan, you're about to get it, oh, then. No. Yeah. <laughs> you're in a small room. We're oh, gonna no. Cough. Even just talking about coffee makes me want to cough. We're just going <laughs> to... Okay. <laughs> Shelly's coughing, so I'm going to do my marketing <laughs> bits here now. <laughs> <laughs> Volo's Guide to Monsters is out in stores now. Get it. It's amazing. There are at least 10 monsters in there, probably up to <laughs> 145 monsters. They're in. But and at least 10. But at least 10. That's the Tweedo promise. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> One monster. Uh, so it's awesome. Go check it out. Uh, also, on December 5th, we'll be streaming the Lost episode of Force Grey. Oh, yeah. Live I was from gonna ask you about that. Los Angeles, the Egyptian theater, which uh, uh, by all accounts is an amazing, Wait, what? beautiful theater inside and Seriously? out. Yeah. It's yeah. at a theater? It's at a theater. Oh. And we shall be filming it with several cameras. Wow. Maybe, maybe at least at least five cameras. Wow, you're making all sorts of promises <laughs> All today. kinds of promises. Some of the members of the uh, the cast that were from the uh, web series from this summer on Nerdist. Okay. Uh, so Matt Mercer will be DMing. All right. Uh, we'll have Utkarsh Umbudkar uh, as uh, love Hitch. You to say his name. I know, because I finally learned. It took it took me a long time, but I learned how to say it. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and probably totally incorrectly well, when I see him in LA. He'll probably change it to the way you're pronouncing it. Oh, that's probably what's really going to happen. really good. I was going to say he's going to beat me up when I see him. In LA again, be like, dude, what are you doing? Um, uh, and as well, Brian Passane is going to be there oh, reprising good. his role, and Shelly Farrow uh, as, as Brawlwin, the dwarf fighter, is going to be there. Um, also, Emily Gordon, Emily V. Gordon, a uh, uh, producer on uh, Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, oh, uh, cool. will be joining. She's actually a co writer of a movie that's coming out that Jonah Apatow is producing. What? Yeah. Is, it's kind of amazing. Could you rubbing elbows with yeah. all sorts of cool people? She's excited. Uh, and we also have one more person out there, uh, but you'll find that news it's out next week. It's a secret. I know who it is. Though. Do I know who it is? Do, have you ever watched uh, The Sweet Life with Zach and Cody? Are you being serious? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm not going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> You've totally watched every episode. I've uh, heard of it. Of the, of the Nickelodeon show. Mm. Popular Nickelodeon show. Is it anyone Wait, who... Is it Nickelodeon or Disney Channel? I don't know. It's one of those. Yeah, it's one, one of those, those. young adult or things. Or like ABC Family or Past something. my generation. Uh, um, but I do have nieces and nephews who watch it and love it. Do you... Is it anyone who's ever been on a Hallmark holiday movie? <laughs> if so, I'm very familiar. I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny 
that statement okay. because I have never seen or know the cast oh, list of those shows. you stop right now. Ha- First of all, there's only like six actors that they just continuously <laughs> rotate into each of these movies. And I'm telling you, if I was an actor, that is all I would do. Yeah. That's, that's all I want to do is Hallmark movies. That's like your highlight? You're like, oh, that's, that's it. the best. Man, all that, that fake snow falling on my green pea coat and my red scarf as I trolled through a little sweet town that's about to get shut down by an old miser who hates the holidays. <laughs> Somehow I find the key to make him not shut the town down. You basically have described every plot of and every one of those movies. Love. And yeah. fall in love mm-hmm. with a rascally scoundrel who turns out to have a heart of gold. Absolutely. Aww. And we love Christmas. And my name's probably Holly and his name is probably Nick. That's just too on the nose a little bit, don't you think? You can't be on the nose enough in a Hallmark movie. Well, we're about to get into like the thick of holiday movie season. I know. So we'll be seeing a lot more. Oh, I'm in it. Yeah. I don't know where you've been. (laughs) The last 12 months. We've been playing these movies since like (laughs) October and I am in. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all that's going on. Yep. Hopefully we'll get one or two of those okay, actors. Okay, thanks for listening. Come- <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about? Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, so, yeah, uh, hopefully uh, uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters or Storm King Thunder is on your Dungeons and Dragons wish I'm sure list. sure LA is very festive at this time of year. It will be very festive, yeah. yeah. Hope you have fun. Bart Mazanova will be there and enjoy <laughs> He's so excited. He's enjoying his time there. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, how early can I leave? <laughs> it's like, how can I get away uh, from you? So romantic. Yeah, you don't have to do anything until Monday, so you probably don't need to leave the Thursday before. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm going to be gallivanting in LA no, no, really. the whole weekend. I got to get set up. I got to get my laptop yeah, set up. Exactly. Plugged in. I got to find an outlet. It's going to take days. It's going to be fun. Yeah, have fun. Hey, yeah, and your boondoggle. That's the official term for it. Yeah. Expense report. Boondoggling. Boondoggle. Reason for travel. Boondoggle. Get away from my family. (laughs) (laughs) Happy holidays. Fine. Maybe Aaron and I will hang out. You should. You should totally commiserate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will. And play games together. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a little D in the D. Teach her some betrayal. Oh. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. I like it. Okay. Sweet. So uh, in honor of us going through this D&D radio series show, uh, we will be playing that in its entirety. So we've kind of forgone the whole segment thing. So I know we introduced Sage Advice last week. Why are you telling people that now? And we're doing Lori Chanel just turning it off. a couple of times. They're just done. I'm telling you, I'm just making sure they know <laughs> so they don't get mad. Uh, but we're going to call up uh, John Peterson, our archivist, and uh, talk a little bit with him before uh, showing the whole episode. Cool. So let's do that now. Hello. Hey, how's it going, John? This is Greg. Uh, Shelly is also here, my co-host. Hi, John. How's it going, Shelly? Good. How are you? Very good. We, we've actually met before. I'm we not have. sure you'd recall. I do I, recall. I, I, yeah, at Gen Con. At Gen Con. Yeah, we were at a panel together. We were? Yeah. What did you guys have a panel And like on? five years ago, or when, however long it was, I said, you should be on our podcast. <laughs> you did, you did, yeah. So, <laughs> I am a woman of my word. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's it's not, perhaps not a timely word, but it's a word. So thank you. Oh, yeah. we've just been booked with guests. I mean, it's like taken five years just to you know get. As Cheech oh. Marin we're like, said we're in very, Ghostbusters very, too, we're very better late yeah. than never. <laughs> you you guys can do so much better than me for we're, this, we're right? Very, so I'm, I'm very, I'm very pleased you could find some room to sneak me yeah. in. Yeah, not very, at all, not popular. at all. In fact, uh, Shelley can take no credit for getting you on this podcast. I have so nothing gonna, to do with it. <laughs> just going to throw. But that when out he there. told me we were talking, I'm like, oh my god, I've met him before, and yeah, five years ago. What was the panel on? It's like a. I think it might have been related to the D and D documentary. Oh, it was. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yep. Um, so that's that, a good... That, you know, there's unfortunately there's like five of these projects and none of them have ever quite managed to come to fruition. No. Uh, maybe yeah. someday they will, but... So that uh, segues nicely into uh, your work as a D&D archivist. So, or, or, you know, as an archivist that sometimes dabbles in D&D. It does, yeah. I mean, I, I'm really fascinated, I guess, by the, the history of, uh, of D&D and RPGs. And you can't really study the history of D&D without kind of D&D being the focal point of it. Um, so necessarily, um, as I've kind of tried to assemble the material that I think tells the story uh, about how D&D evolved in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. um, I've tried to work with some of the people that are you know, looking at, I guess, less academic, less scholarly approaches than I do hmm. uh, that'll get this message out to a, a wider audience, yeah. Cool. So what are some of the, uh, 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 you know, highlights of the work that you've you've uh, uncovered, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I did put out a book about this in 2012. It's called Playing at the World. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of history of, of uh, war games and role playing games. It focuses a lot actually on that transition point, which is not as easy a transition point as you might think to find in the sense that, you know, when, when people put out D&D at first, um, it didn't call itself a role-playing game. Nobody really knew what it would be to have the genre we have of role-playing games today um, at that time. And though that process by which people kind of borrowed some of the techniques of wargaming, uh, some of the things that maybe made it more open-ended, more freeform, and incorporated them into this new style of tabletop gaming, that, that's what really fascinates me. That's what I really get engaged with. Yeah, that is interesting because it does, it comes from you know, a format that's competitive, that's, you know, was about, you know, miniatures on a large scale to the smaller scale. Was that, was that part of the transition as well? That was part of it. I mean, getting it down from the point where I'm, you know, kind of in control of an army, right, to where I'm in control of a, a single person. Mm -hmm. And rather than trying to, like, simulate, like, an army and what it means to, you know, throw one battalion or whatever against another, you're interested in quantifying, like, what a person is. Are they smart? Are they charismatic? They want, what kinds of things can they do? And that, the personal identification that that ended up creating between the players and the characters was one of the real catalysts for role-playing games, yeah. That's cool. So uh, what were some of the um, people that you talked to were this through interviews and, and, and how things were made or is there actual, uh, you know, uh, physical evidence, papers or, or, or design documents that you were able to uncover? Oh, both, definitely. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough, I started on this project while Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were still with us. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of uh, put some questions to them. And the community, I think it was very generous to, to me with, with their time um, and with the resources. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've managed to find... Um, tens of thousands of obscure documents, fanzines, right? A lot, a lot of the way that this community talked to itself in the 60s and 70s were through these um, very small print run, like amateur magazines, they called fanzines, mm -hmm. that you know, you, you'd print out 40 copies, maybe 100 copies. The biggest ones might be doing like 300 or so copies that would get sent out to the memberships of these clubs or whatever, and people would kind of exchange ideas, oh, we should have games like this, games like that. But it, it's in those you can really find people like Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson talking to the community and in interacting even with each other as they kind of negotiated what the original parameters of role-playing games would be. That's so crazy. This is fascinating because the amount of research that you've done, and I've read parts of your book and your background and all that is incredible. There's, it's, it's unprecedented. It's other, I mean, a lot of people have done research, and, but the, the, the level that you have gone to is 
ridiculous. And now I imagine myself, like, I'm trying to find, like, a pretty good recipe for roasted Brussels sprouts. And I'll get on <laughs> Pinterest, and I'll be overwhelmed by the amount of Brussels sprout recipes there are. And right. I just say, forget it. We're not having Brussels sprouts. <laughs> right. So how do you sift through the amount of information that's being thrown at you and distill it down and actually, like, find these nuggets? Um, it is, you know, it's kind of an enormous game of concentration is something I often compare it to, you know, that the card game where you kind yes. of flip over cards, recognize them. You, you've got to be good at that to do this. You're playing concentration across like 10,000 cards and saying, you know, when you flip one over, ah, oh, you know, I think I saw that guy's name before over here. Oh, and, yeah. you know, you find the connections and you just, you know, it, it is a painstaking archival process. But the thing is, that's kind of what I get. That's what I like. Right? Yeah. So you oh, have to really, really, really enjoy love that. that. Um, I joined finding even what what the elements are that you want to study. When I started working on this, it was unclear uh, even what the right fanzines would be to look for. Mm. Um, And just that process of putting together where you'd even look, let alone then studying these things, that was fascinating for me. And I'm still doing it now. You know, years later, I'm still finding new stuff. And um, occasionally I uncover weird things as I do this. No one even knew existed, like, say, D&D radio show pilots. Okay, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So are you, do people in the community seek you out to, uh, like if they f- have found something from their archives or heard something, do they come to you with that information? Are These you- days, it, that does happen, yeah. I mean, again, the community's been very, very generous to me. I mean, I think I think a lot of people, um, you know, have, have looked very favorably, I guess, on the mission, on the way I approach this. I, I do try to be very scu- scrupulous about my claims, not to kind of rely too much on anecdotes, try try to get aside. You know, there's there's always been this kind of narrative of, did Gary invent everything? Did Arneson invent everything? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's been kind of this competition in the community about that. And I, I really try to cut a neutral path and just tell the story as it is in the document. But because of that, yeah, people people do come to me and say, John, I've got something interesting you've got to see. And, you know, so, sometimes it's someone who indeed may have an axe to grind, you know, in favor <laughs> of one of these partisan sides. But a lot of the times it's just people who say, look, I was there. You know, I worked mm-hmm. at TSR or I was friends with these guys. I've got this material. I think you'd really like to see it. And um, I, I can't tell you how gratifying it has been to me um, having kind of done work on this book playing throughout like five years, basically in isolation, and then suddenly sprung this on the world and said, look, this is what you could do with this material. Um, it's been really gratifying to me how many people have, have come to me and kind of entrusted me with uh, with their stories and their material. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's cool. It's documented. There's, you know, all of you've kind of collected everybody's stories and put them together in one place. It's very I'm cool. trying. It's very cool. <laughs> I'm trying to help. Yeah. <laughs> So, so when, oh, sorry. I've talked enough. No, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just, I'm kind of fascinated here. Yeah. Uh, what is it about D&D, though, that made you want to dig in, or, or our uh, role-playing games in general, that made you want to, to dig into such this, this level? Well, obviously, I have to believe that um, this is some kind of change in our culture, something profoundly interesting about our culture. I mean, you know, I, I study a lot of the tabletop stuff, but you, you know, you have to study that in light of what has happened with computer games, what's happened with LARPs, what's happened with so many of the other forms that have kind of depended so much on the innovations in D&D. So th- there's a sense in which I, I believe, actually, we're still in the infancy of a transformation that technologies like VR that are going around now um, yeah. are going to be able to to apply these same principles to re- really change human culture. <laughs> and so, so yeah, I mean, there, there is a sense in which I, I believe that. And as a consequence, when I really studied this, 
you know, and started asking myself, well, where do all these innovations really trace back to, right? What, who really got the principles of simulation you needed to turn these um, working style mechanics into something that could tell stories, stories that would really move people, that would engage people, and, you know, inevitably that leads you back to D&D. D&D was really the focusing influence on that. Did you play D&D? Well, so, yes, I have played Dungeons & Dragons on, on more than one occasion. <laughs> um, yes, I, I am interested in the game. I mean, I when I was growing up, um, I guess I, I kind of admired it from afar, I'd say. It wasn't something that I was, right. like, super into. Um, you know, I, I certainly remember the first time I played when I was maybe eight or nine, and I had a babysitter who was an older kid who loved D&D and, like, you know, wanted to basically spend his babysitting time playing D&D. Nice. And so he... He ran me through the original dungeon in the Dungeon Master's Guide um, as a single magic user against the party, the example dungeon. It was immediately slaughtered. Like I walked in, <laughs> the first room of works I walked into could slaughter a first level magic user. Um, but, you know, so I, it wasn't really until after college I started playing uh, Magic the Gathering, actually. Mm -hmm. And that led me into Jihad, the, which then became Vampire the Masquerade. It was kind of a, one of the first card games that right. riffed on the principles of magic. From that, I got into vampire LARPing. That crowd I met that was into Jihad were also LARPing. And then through that, I met people who played D&D and got really into kind of third-ed D&D. So I, I took a kind of circuitous path to this, I'd say. Nice. Yeah, I remember that Jihad game. It was interesting. The only thing, the mechanic I remember was that the, the blood was also what you needed to do to cast spells, but it was also your life. So it was yeah. this, this, yeah, this weird thing where you had to you had to do it in order to to win the game. But the more you did it, the closer you got to your own defeat, which felt yeah. very vampire-y to me. Mm -hmm. It should, it should, yeah, it should. That's a fun game, yeah. Yeah, uh, cool. Well, I mean, that is uh, 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 all pretty much what I mean. I, I like every, hearing everybody's stories about how they get into D and D because it's always so different and tells so much about you know uh, uh, what the power of of the storytelling and how people can always gravitate it in weird ways when they're younger or when they're older. It doesn't matter. It's all just when, when the spark hits you. Yeah. Um, so uh, TSR was struggling with the idea of, of how that spark would hit people uh, in the early 80s. And uh, it seemed like they were experimenting uh, with uh, Saturday morning cartoons as well as, you know, the uh, kind of the idea of starter sets or idea, you know, sets that, you know, box sets that you could buy that would get you into the game. Uh, uh, or past the arcane nature of the game a little bit easier. But it looks, sounds like they also did a radio show, or at least the idea of a radio show as well, um, which I don't, I don't think I had heard of uh, until you discovered this. Uh, uh, so, yeah, John, why don't you tell us where, how you came upon this, uh, yeah. this, this, this cassette of this radio show pilot? Yeah, it's, well, so there's, there's interesting, interesting stories about how it was created and then, of course, why, why we got it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the collecting community, and I, I work with a, a number of collectors uh, closely you know, trying to find things like this. Um, this was something that actually came out of the personal collection of Brian Bloom, who was one of the uh, co-founders of DSR. Really, originally, Gary Gygax and Brian Bloom were the only two people who were employed by, by uh, TSR Hobbies <laughs> when that company was formed. And uh, Brian had a number of interesting artifacts in his collection. And uh, two guys that I work with a lot, uh, one named Bill Meinhard and another named Scott Brand, um, you know, they worked with Brian a bit when he decided he wanted to get rid of uh, some of the things he'd been holding on to for all these years, you know, for 30 or 40 years or some of these things. Um, and this cassette came out of, out of that. And um, 
you know, it, it was something, again, there's very little documentary evidence of this whole process out mm. there. I could find a couple of things. There was an internal TSR newsletter called Random Events. This was what was kind of an employee newsletter in the early 1980s where uh, Gary Gagax mentioned, since they were building an, an entertainment division, they, they'd known since I think probably 1980, they wanted to have this kind of media division to try to promote the game. And there were gonna be several prongs to this. They were gonna do the cartoon show, of course. They were gonna do the movie, um, and the movie, it's its own whole story. The movie they wanted to make in 1982 that never got made, it's its own <laughs> whole story. Um, but yeah, this, this radio show was something that was mentioned in some of this uh, early correspondence about it in random events, and I, I kind of, just wrote that off as something, well, it was, they were spitballing, they probably never got around to it until we found this cassette. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing at how well-produced it is. It's not That's, just yeah, a we mom and about. pop, you know, hey, let's throw on some microphones and read the script. And like, it's, it's well-acted, What there's sound very effects. Progressive. Yeah, yeah, the sound effects were really good. Yeah. It was, I was very entertained listening to it. So did you ever find out how this pilot came about? I mean, we know a little bit about it, um, you know, and again, um, fortunately, I can also rely on people like uh, Frank Benzer, who was kind of Gary's right hand man at the time. I, when I started researching this, I immediately wrote to him and he he recalls how they recorded this. They went down to Chicago. There was a studio there on Ohio Street. Uh, he recalls having to do a lot of kind of last minute edits to the script as they they went into this. But yeah, I mean, obviously, the development process of this was to try to capture actual D&D play. And then, you know, so they, they basically recorded it, transcripted it, and then edited it a bit, um, you know, spiced it up a bit, and then engaged voice actors to perform the parts. And yeah, the fascinating thing about this, obviously this was something they intended to use to teach people what it would be like to play D&D. And that's not something the other efforts they were exploring in the media division could really do, right? The, the cartoon show, well, we, we can watch it, and there are lots of kind of references to D&D or D&D concepts in it, yeah. but you would never be able to figure out how to play D&D, right, from watching it. Um, this was different. This was something where because it's just audio, because it's just the dialogue, and they did it as the dialogue between the DM and the players, mm -hmm. it's actually really close to a play report. They're, they're teaching by example on this, so it's a fascinating prong, that media strategy. It's interesting because when we did the, when fourth edition came out and we did the podcast with Penny Arcade, a lot of people said that that's how they learned how to play, by just listening to those podcasts. And I had kind of a, a similar feeling when I was listening to this, is that because it really is one of the, the better descriptions of what D&D is, mm -hmm. that opening. And, yeah. You know, it's like, it was actually, it still, it holds up. It it's holds good. up. I mean, it, it was really good. We I know that we've... It's hard to describe D&D. &D. Uh, <laughs> do you think that the best way to learn D&D is to either watch it being played or, or, in fact, listen to people playing it? Yeah, or play it yourself. Or play it yourself. But what before would... you get to that point. Yeah, exactly. Because it is a little bit daunting to just you know, open the player's handbook and know what to do. Right. And it's interesting well, that, that Menser said he was involved as well because, I mean, he was the, he, this was before the red box that he created would have come out, correct? Uh, he would have been working on it at the time. Yeah. Right. But I see there's a lot of parallels there between the, you know, the kind of choose your own adventure style of introducing mm -hmm. the concepts of D&D &D to the script uh, for this radio show. 
I mean, definitely. And I mean, that, you know, beyond just choosing your own adventure, and it's true, the DM asks a lot of kind of leading questions, trying to make sure he can funnel the PCs in a productive directions yeah. in the story. I mean, what fascinates me really is that whole game spectatorship dimension to this. Since game spectatorship is something in the 80s, no one would have imagined it could be like an industry, right? And right. Yet here we are today with like Twitch and YouTube and I mean, with Critical yeah. Role, with Acquisitions Incorporated. I mean, there's a, there's a whole like industry of game spectatorship and the foresight that this developed um, that this demonstrated at the time is remarkable. Of course, ahead of its time, um, yeah. probably not something that would have been the success um, you know then that we we might see today. But um, still, remarkable foresight. Absolutely. So, so why so, didn't they publish it, or why didn't it didn't go anywhere? Did it? Yeah, that I, that I can't tell you. Um, you know, maybe we'll turn up a document someday that'll tell us that. Um, it could be that this was just. I mean, again, in the early '80s when they were kicking this around, how how big an audience really on radio would there have been mm -hmm. for this at the time? I mean, you know, kind of, kind of this, this, this harkens back almost to radio narrative stuff of like the fifties, even the thirties, right? right. Um, where you would try to engage people in these kind of serial stories. Um, and Gary certainly knew that stuff. Gary was fascinated by those kind of radio dramas of yours. So this, this may have been a throwback to his youth that when mm. they really kind of took it to market study, it looked like it wasn't going to be viable. Yeah, there wasn't a lot going on at that time. I do remember, I mean, my first introduction to radio shows was kind of like the Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, from the BBC, as well as there's the, the Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings kind of adaptations to radio shows. So those were super popular at the time. So maybe those were kind of uh, examples. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, we can be like them and, and, and kind of show off this at the same time. But uh, you would need a partner. You would need kind of a like a, a PBS or... Right. Or, or a BBC that would agree to distribute it as well. Um, yeah. This so, might have been more viable on the Beeb, it's true, than on American radio. I mean, yeah. I can see it falling in with some of those shows a bit better. I mean, it also is kind of a commercial, though. Like, when, true. as you listen Which to it, probably... you know, Morley kind of is selling us on this is the game. And this is kind of does everything short of telling you, like, go buy this. So, yeah. Well, let's uh, before we get because I'd love to, to, to deconstruct some of the parts of it, because I, I, I really enjoyed some of them. And some of mine was like, oh, OK, and they could have could have worked on. But I'd love for our <laughs> listeners to be able to hear it. Uh, uh, and uh, and then we can have a conversation afterwards. So without further ado, let's listen to this. The uh, the, uh, the radio show pilot from Dungeons and Dragons. And when, when, when do you, you think it was, was created, John? I'd guess 1982. 1982. Had All right, so from 1982, let's listen. Oh my, I've never seen so many monstrous creatures in one world, in one place at the same time. I mean, practically all at once. Oh, they were ugly, mean, grotesque things, and they'd stop at nothing. Nothing at all to create havoc and dismay. But this is a magic place. And in this fantasy world, there's every creature your imagination ever feared. But there's every power you could dream of having and most any character you might wish to become. There's every adventure you could possibly embark upon. This magic place is my world. Me, <laughs> Molly the Wizard. It's the Greyhawk world of advanced Dungeons and Dragons adventures, or AD&D games. And throughout the next hour, we're going to take you through an adventure recreated from an actual AD&D game, that popular pastime from TSR Hobbies. 
So, don't leave our Greyhawk world. Welcome, welcome to the imaginary land of advanced dungeons and dragons. Before entering Greyhawk's world of AD&D adventures, you need to understand how the game is basically played and how characters are developed. The leader, the playwright, so to speak, is a dungeon master, and he or she must be clever as, <laughs> as a wizard. You see, this person coordinates all the action by leading the group of players through their perilous journey. This one individual, the dungeon master, uses a scenario he created, or a scenario from any one of many pre-packaged modules. These modules are like maps that only the dungeon master sees, and they are complete with various tables giving descriptions of imaginary lands and numerous monsters and situations. Picture what I mean. Most of the time, the dungeon master has to rely on these dice, special dragon dice. They are coordinated with tables in the modules, and they often decide the results of many situations, including combat and encounters. What the wizardly dungeon master does is describes the physical territory his party of players encounter. And then, he must play the part of every person or creature they find. And then, he allows the players to choose their course of action. But even though the dungeon master knows the land and monsters, not even he knows what his players will do, because that is left up to the player's imagination and how they become one with their characters while playing the game. And what a bunch of characters indeed! Each player can become a human, an elf, dwarf, gnome or others, and become a fighting man, magic user, cleric or thief, or any one of any number of characters. Now, once the player makes a choice, his character's personality and strengths and weaknesses are determined by rolling of the dice, while the dungeon master watches. The six basic abilities are strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, and charisma. Let's say, for example, a player decides to be a thief, and we're going to roll for dexterity. Yes, mm-hmm. I see by his score of 17, our thief just acquired a high dexterity level. Oh, very, very good for a thief. Now let's try his intelligence. Oh, my, my, my. He just obtained a low intelligence score of four. Oh, well. What we have is a thief with high dexterity and the intelligence of an earthworm. Still, no matter what each character comes up with throughout the adventure, Players will have many opportunities to gain points that will increase adventuring skills or, heaven forbid, destroy them. Oh, my, 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 let's not even think of it. But do let's meet with the characters in tonight's cast. Our dungeon master, Ren, Ruth, Ears, and Ardale. We barely got out of that mess alive, didn't we? Were it not for your holy water, Ruth, the wraith, that shadowy, loathsome creature, would have destroyed us. Indeed, it was wisdom, a wise choice. And ears, how are you? Oh, I knew all the time would be okay, I think. Didn't I just hear a friendly sound? Oh, my, my, my. 
You all sound so tired and fatigued. Oh, fatigued. fatigued? Fatigued, did you say? <laughs> Why, Morley, we're ready to step into our next adventure. Oh, oh, good. Then, tell everyone who you are. Hi, I'm Lovable Wren. I'm an elf. Yeah, but I'm a tough elf, because uh, in the advanced Dungeons & Dragons adventure, I'm also a fighter. Intelligence, dexterity, and strength are all part of my nature. Blended brilliantly with a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. Ren, of course, is uh, modest, too, as you can tell. But it's true, he's lovable just like me, ears. I'm a half-elf ranger, which is a type of fighter, and I have great intuitive powers, which often keeps us out of trouble. I can tell truly when something doesn't feel right, so I'm very hard to surprise. And I'm very valuable to most any adventure. Well, we're all important, ears. Consider my quick-thinking ability, and my remarkable constitution, and my dexterity. Very important for a thief like me, Ardale. And really, Ran, we all have a sense of humor. Some of us are just a bit more sophisticated, however. Now, now, now. We all have special blessings. Ruth would say blessings, and she is a cleric. And therefore, mine are mostly of a healing nature. I'm wise and gentle, and I love my companions very, very much. Now that you've met our players, let's begin our adventure into an imaginary land where monsters roam free and magic exists, where good and evil battle, and law and chaos are forever at odds. Uh, Dungeon Master? Thank you, Morley. Now, uh, Wren, Ruth, Ears, and Ardale, you are companions, and find each other attractive and compatible, and have done a good bit of traveling with each other in the past. Though not the lowliest of adventurers, indeed, you are also not the highest, but one of a throng of maybe 50 to 100 of your ilk about the world, and scattered among a variety of different towns and whatnot. You have many contacts, of course. You know a few influential people and a lot of slum types that you met on your way up. Slum types? <laughs> Those are peers. On one dark and stormy night, sitting around the local inn, relaxing and congratulating yourself for not having to be out in the damp, a note is brought by a dripping messenger who does not wait for a reply. He goes dashing back out into the downpour, accompanied by a crash of thunder and lightning. You look at the note, and it is a simple one-word message that says, come, and is signed with a rune you don't recognize immediately, but then suddenly realize it belongs to the assistant mayor of the town, a fellow whom you met a couple of months ago in somewhat unsavory circumstances. But to whom you ended up owing a favor. Did we vote for him in the last election? Probably not. In any event, you can go to him immediately, or you can wait for the next morning when it's more to your convenience to see what he wants. How big is the favor we owe him? Do we really have to see him? It's a sizable favor. He had two of you revived at the end of the last affair. But only after I begged him. Well, do we want to go out in the rain or not? Well, I don't mind. What's a little water? Besides, I haven't had a bath for a while. Boy. Well, I'm not staying alone. So you dash over to his place near the town hall. It's not that far away, but you do get fairly soaked on the way over. The thunder and lightning and winds have passed, and it's now just a good downpour. Druid's doings? Very possibly. You, Ardale, notice an oddly familiar figure from a nearby alley watching your passage across the street 
wearing a distinctive little peaked hat. Mm. But you don't say anything about it immediately. Peaked, eh? Yes, and oddly disturbing. You think you've seen it somewhere before, but you're really not sure. Anyway, you dash to this official's private house, and when you arrive, you're ushered in somewhat disdainfully by the servant and left dripping in the outer hallway. In the past couple of minutes, you've dried up a bit, and out comes the gentleman you're waiting to see. He says, Greetings. Greetings, my friends. I see you could all make it. Excellent. Uh, why don't you come into my private study? And he offers the way. He offers you fine chairs to sit in, apparently unmindful of your current state. And he says, An unusual occurrence has come my way, and I need your help. Uh, there is a friend of mine that I left somewhere due to unfortunate circumstance when we were off adventuring a couple of uh, years back. Two years? Well, I... I have not had occasion really to think of him since, so his plight somehow passed from my memory. Uh, recently, though, events have come to light which require his assistance. Now, I can give you directions to the place where he is currently and also equip you in ways to free him and bring him back. Quincy, will that be quits then? Will we have paid our debt to you? Well, if you insist. Uh, it's always good to shake on it. But can I ask a few questions? Oh, surely, surely. On what relations did you and your old friend part company? Well, it was rather unexpected on his part. Ah, I see. Would he be only too happy to return and join forces with you? Oh, I'm sure. If he were aware of the problem... What should we tell him, Beckins? Well, I'll give you a message for him. I'll jot it down. Uh, now, I'll tell you the story and give you a map and a powerful, magical scroll. What is this Quincy, the assistant mayor, up to? And what became of his lost friend? Where exactly will the map take our adventurers? Oh, my, my, my. Our adventurers have learned that the man they are seeking is trapped in a dangerous cave. The mysterious gentleman has been rather vague about events responsible for his friend's entrapment. He did say, however, that they had battled strange creatures at the top of one of the mountains in the chain leading up to North Ending. The group discovers that the dangerous caves are actually in one peak called Vulture's Spike, deriving its name from circling vultures. Our characters agree to take on the assignment as long as they are freed from their debt to this gentleman. He equips them with a map and a powerful magic scroll. They shake hands on it, and our light-fingered thief, Ardale, does so quite eagerly, cleverly slipping an official signet ring from the gentleman's finger. After a good night's sleep at the inn, our group prepares for the three or four day trip. The dungeon master has just rolled the dice to determine what adventure lies ahead for Wren, Ears, Ruth, and Ardale. You sight trees nearby where you're riding along, and there appears to be some spider webbing in their branches. It's well ahead, though. Mmm, spider silk sells high in the market. Ooh, but I hate bugs. Well, there doesn't appear to be any danger, though. I see no sign of those fuzzy little creatures, and spider silk does sell high in the market. So we avoid it. Avoid it. Ah, you guys are no fun. Do you avoid the spidery nest? Yeah, at all costs. So. 
you cut off into the woods and circle. Uh, hold it. Wait a minute, guys. Now watch out for this. This could be just a, a trap to lead us off the main path to another trap that's hidden. Should I be mapping this? In all Dungeons & Dragons games, though the dungeon master has an overall view in his scenario, one member of the expedition usually maps their progress on graph paper. This way, if a clue is missed, a blind alley encountered, or obstacles discovered which prove impossible to overcome, the adventurers have a map to retrace their steps. In this case, Ardale and Wren tell ears. It isn't necessary to map their journey so far, because they seem to feel they've been this way many times before. That is, to North Ending. Fortunately, they encounter no danger throughout the second day and evening, but by the third day, they are approaching the mountains, and the weather is becoming progressively worse. Your horses are progressing upwards, and you're keeping your heads down against the driving rain. Not me. I'm looking proudly on. It's part of my nature. Suddenly, there is an odd, bat-like bird sitting on Ears Horse's rump. Oh, no! I swapped the thing with the flat of my sword. Sure enough, there are more in the air. Let us gallop forward if we dare. I will pull my cloak tight about me and ride and spur my horse on. Ruth, what's the matter with your horse? It seems he doesn't want to respond. Your horse, Ruth, is jumping a bit, and you find it hard to hold on, even with your tremendous dexterity. I will ride around back instead of trying to control this beast and help my friend by swatting the ugly Sturge with my war hammer. These are blood-sucking creatures, aren't they? Can I use my magic sword and let it flame? Can I swing it around without hitting anyone? Yes. So the ranger says... And suddenly, the area is lit by the flaming light, and in the light of the sword and the driving rain, you see, indeed, there are five of these strange bat-winged birds. But the flame doesn't scare them! Not yet. The battle continues until the rain stops and the field is rather quiet. After the battle, our group is left with five live sleeping Sturges because of the spell cast by Wren. Wren slays four of them, leaving one alive. This welt on my leg! I'm bandaging the wound and saying a liturgy of healing over his body. Oh, don't worry, friends. I can pray for more magic this evening and again in the morning. I, uh, I have an idea, friends. We're given this message for the mayor's friend, but it seems we're going through all of this turmoil without knowing for sure what this message says, or that it isn't a trap of sorts. Now, I just happened to acquire a certain official signet ring, which will allow us to replace the seal on the letter. Don't you think it would be to uh, our advantage to open up this letter and peruse it? Uh, that, that's very clever. Uh, do it without a second thought. While they're doing that, I am quickly and meticulously, as is always my way, moving to put a muzzle on this sturge. With what? Leather thongs for my pack. Quickly and meticulously. So, you tie up the beak of this sturge, while dramatically the note gets cut, opened up, and the cleric seems to be laughing. <laughs> my friends, the assistant Lord Mayor knows us well. Here is his message. I figured you'd look. Well, this guy got turned into stone. He's easy enough to find. Tell him I need his help. Friends, we're looking for a statue. Oh, what's wrong with that? Uh, we've got a stone to flash scroll spell. 
I mean, don't you, Ren? Of course I do. But you don't understand, Ears. What turns people into stone are many nasty creatures. Basilisks, medusas, gorgons, cockatrices, and all sorts of evil magic. Perhaps we ought to polish our shields. Good thinking, Ruth. <laughs> A well-polished shield will indeed reflect the petrifying gaze of basilisks or medusas, turning them to stone instead of you. Excellent! Now let's quickly and meticulously proceed on. Well, what are we going to do with this trapped Sturge, for heaven's sake? Oh, carry it for a while. I will try to tame it. On that note, the Sturge wakes up. Well, isn't it supposed to sleep for eight hours? Well, I uh, guess it wasn't. Oh, yes! Now what are you going to do with that thing? I mean, where are you going to put it? I'm going to hold it for a while as I ride on my horse. Meticulously and carefully. So all of you proceed for an hour or two and twilight turns to dark. Is it nighttime? That's what usually happens when it gets dark. And you set up camp once again for the night very cautiously. Are we out of the trees? You're out of the trees. Oh, yay, no more trees. In fact, within a mere hour or two of travel, if you wish to do it at night in this rugged terrain, which I doubt, is the very peak which you seek. Uh, not me. I don't want to travel anymore today. In fact, I don't want to travel anywhere with that blasted bird. I don't like that bird. So you set up for the night. Uh, do you wish to take any specific action regarding the release of that bird? Well, I mean, I think I just want to kill that bird. Well, I'd keep an eye on the bird to make you feel easier about it, Ears. But I'm afraid I'll be consumed in my prayers. Well, the bird is not a vastly entertaining show, either. Otherwise, I'd be glad to do it. I... I just don't have the strength in me. Doesn't anyone like my bird? Oh, we just have more important things to do. Like sleep, for example. But uh, we will take turns keeping watch. Let's worry about what to do with that bird tomorrow, though. It's your idea about that thing, Ren, so uh, you watch it first. So in great need of sleep, our party takes turns alternating between sleep and watch duty, with the final leg of their journey before them. Throughout the next day, all goes along quietly until nightfall. <gasps> what? What? Oh, Oversight for sure. Now, let me think of something meticulously and carefully. There isn't time, Ren. I'll use my sword. This time without the sword. Aha! I flipped one! Swing, Ren, you cut out the house! Look at that! Another one! Sliced neatly in half. Ren, Ren, use a first level spell. Think for a moment and give it your best shot. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying again. Uh, yes. Yes. I'll try another sleep spell. Oh, no. Does that mean you're still going to keep one of them alive again? Oh, God, gravy. Sleep. 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 And so, once again, our party of brave, clever characters are ready to fall asleep. However, none of them sleep too comfortably. They're all keeping an eye on this bird Wren seems attached to. Unbeknownst to the group, a dark figure watches from the nearby woods. A figure with a peaked cap. Oh my, I think we'll see more of him later. What strange creatures are to be encountered at Vulture's Spike, if indeed there are any at all? And will they find a statue? We'll be right back for the second half of our advanced Dungeons & Dragons adventure. Oh, my, my. I see our adventurers are about to wake up. 
In just a moment, we'll continue with the second half of our advanced Dungeons and Dragons adventure. Welcome back to the second half of our advanced Dungeons and Dragons adventure. After a frightful battle with blood-sucking Sturges, Wren, Ruth, Ears, and Ardale have spent the night camped out just a few miles from their destination at Vulture's Fight. It was a fairly quiet night, and now our foursome is waking to a beautiful day. Oh, in the fine morning, in the bracing atmosphere of these mountains, I will say my prayers so that I can do more magic. And I'll prepare breakfast. Beans and biscuits. Oh, breakfast from Ardale. Well, hardship does purify the soul. A cute comment from the good cleric Ruth. So, you set off as usual, somewhat looking forward to your adventures, and by mid-morning you uneventfully arrive near the base of the infamous Vulture's Spike. Wait, we were two hours away. How come it's mid-morning? That's what it is after you get up, do all your studying, pack, head off, resting the horses at appropriate intervals, and try to go up a mountain. Ranger was slow again this morning. She's definitely not a morning person. Uh, by the way, I killed the bird. I hope you're very, very happy. Oh, I'm so relieved. <laughs> I really hated that thing. Vulture Spike appears to live up to its name. A couple of dubious avian types are winging their way about its peak. You mean vultures? Possibly. I'll take a long bow shot at one. Twang goes my arrow. Unfortunately, they're still out of range. Even for my long bow? You fall short. For heaven's sake, Wren, you shot an arrow into the air. When trying to shoot the top of a mountain, it is not often successful. Well, you said they were flying around. Off the top of the peak. Well, I guess that explains it. While he's investigating the vulture, I'll be examining the mountainside to see if there might be a cave opening. Eyeing the hillside suspiciously, you do find one opening. Huh? Rand decides to forget about the vultures in favor of exploring this cave. We'll follow Ren, but I can't see. I'm human, not elf. I'm going to light a candle before I go in and put it in my little lantern. Just as you're about to go deeper into the cave, Ren, you suddenly fall into a pit trap. What do you want to do? Do you have a spell? Yes. Okay, as you're falling into the pit and you're about to hit what looks like a very hard and very deep down floor, you say this magical phrase, feather fall, and suddenly become light as a feather wafting your way down to the bottom. Oh, so clever. But how are you going to get out now? Yeah, I have good friends. Yes, sure enough, you folks come on up and see that indeed, just a section of the floor caved away. How far is it to the bottom and our friend? 40 feet. Ren, you look around and nothing find here? nothing oh, in the nothing. pit at all. Dark. Hi there, Ren. I'll pull you out with my rope while Ruth and Ears keep an eye out for monsters. I'm quickly climbing up. I'll fire up my bullseye lantern at this point. As you if climb the rope, cleric lights the bullseye lantern. You successfully get out of the pit. Get out and boogie. I'd uh, like my rope back, please. Uh, which way are you boogieing? Into darkness. Follow me. Let's try this cave. Why are we always just running into darkness with you, Wren? Because I want to. It's part of my reckless nature. But what happened to meticulously and carefully? <laughs> That's just one side of me. Wren does get reckless from time to time. He will die one day. This is why we were beholden to the mayor for two enormous favors. 
anyway, you go running into a passage which ends with a T intersection. Which way are you going, Ren? To the right. That was a quick decision. Are you sure? One must think rapidly in a time like this. Uh, if he thinks too hard, we'll really be in trouble. Uh, you guys have no faith. None at all. I beg your pardon. Ren runs up and turns right. Maybe we'd better wait here while he's running amok. I'll hold up my candle lantern to see which way the breeze is blowing. Ah, that means there will be a way out of here. Possibly. You don't think you'd be dumb enough to fall into another pit, do you? Now, now. Let's do indeed have some faith. I'll follow him. Oh, well. Let's go. Okay, the rest of you follow, but proceed at a normal pace, knowing how crazy Ren can be. And you begin to realize there are a large number of big lizards in here. How many legs? What are they? I can't tell how many legs yet. They look like basilisks to me. Basilisks? Oh, no! Stand back. Look around at these creatures, and there's a pool of water, and they all look at you and seem to hiss as lizards do. What do you want to do? Yeah, I want to get out of here. Do you turn around and run away? Yes, yes. Where are we? We're between him and freedom. Great goose eggs. It's Basilisk City here. A whole room full of them. Let's go the other way. Yeah, but they'll be coming up behind us. We have to do something to stop them from chasing us. They'll only chase us if they're hungry. We're just going to go the other way and, and get out of here. Say, Elf, did you count their legs? You kidding? I don't want to die. Oh, that's true. Let's just get out of here. In any event. You, Ren, saw them all, turned around, and ran out rejoining the party. Here I come. Did he count the legs? Did he even count the legs? No. But do they have more than the normal number of legs? What does that mean? Well, multi-legged creatures the are... basilisks uh, six or eight. Well, whatever those creatures are, they're not on our side. Why didn't you take one of those with you like you did the bird? No, there's an idea. I'd love to. I just can't. Now, now, no bickering, children. Let's just survive. I'm sorry. Let's just go the other way. I'm going to be in front of the party with them between me and the basilisk. <laughs> I don't want to be a statue for eternity. Okay, you're back at the T-intersection. What do you folks want to do? I want to go the other way. Uh, is anything coming? You hear some hissing and an occasional growl. The sounds that lizards make. Sort of a squeaky kind of hissing growl or what have you. But nothing in pursuit? No, they don't appear to be chasing you. Oh, thank goodness. Tell me, if I don't look at a basilisk, can it still turn me to stone? No, but it does have a very nasty bite. And if you're not watching, it can sneak right up on you. Uh, let's leave. It's not worth it. You're right, it's not worth it. How many things are out there? Uh, many. Multitudes. Let us explore the other passage for possible alternatives. Uh, let's leave right now. This second. Immediately. Take out mirrors and shields for protection. I'm with you. I'll take out a light gem and proceed quickly and meticulously down the left side of the corridor. I will lead again, hoping, as always, for the best. No, wait. Uh, I will not lead because I have the only means of turning one of us back to flesh. Uh, I, I can see in the dark. Fine. So I'll go first. Hold it. Hold it. Um, here, take my ring. Put it on. Well done. A magic ring of protection. Ring of protection? It will help your saving throws. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's very nice of you. I'm glad I saved your life. But I want that ring back before they get me. The group continues into the cave looking for the statue. Following years down the passage, the party finds dozens of statues of humans and elves both mixed with several strange figures. But after closely examining them all, 
they find one rather impressive-looking character. Their goal, success. But how are they going to get it home? We'll be right back with the conclusion of our adventure. In our final segment, through much trial and tribulation, Wren, Ears, Ruth, and Ardale managed to escape lizards, basilisks, critters, deep waters, giant bats, and miscalculated turns. When they finally discovered the statue, they figured out a secret code that proved the statue was the correct one. But, my, it's a heavy statue, and oh, my, 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 they haven't quite figured out how to get the thing back home so that they can be released from their debts to the gentleman responsible for this adventure. Hmm, let's see what's going on. It's going to be near impossible to get this bulky statue down the mountain. Yeah, I don't remember my shrink spell. Uh, Dungeon Master, while those guys are doing whatever they're going to do, I'm going to step out to the mouth of the cave and, and look for that guy in the peaked hat I thought was following us. This would be a lousy time for trouble, so I'd better be ready. Good thinking, Ardale. Uh, ready with a scroll, Wren? Do it. Make him flesh and blood. No. Come on, Wren. You can make him flesh. Only you can do it. Okay, I'm going to make this dude flesh, but I want something for it later on. I take out my gnarled parched metal scroll that says turning stone into flesh in three easy lessons. Read the magic words directed at this statue. As you're reading this ancient inscription, the very letters on the scroll start to writhe and glow, and you start casting the arcane, powerful spell of turning stone into flesh once again. The ranger, keeping a lookout here in the cave, watches the magical activity with an unpracticed eye, but also sees someone approaching up the hill and warns everyone. There's a guy down there in, in a peaked hat watching us. A, a peaked hat? I saw him in town. He must have followed us here. Oh, I don't like this a bit. My sling is coming out. I have my bow ready. Shoot the beggar. Oh, wait. Ren, just continue with your scroll spell. Yeah, I'm almost done. I hope. The figure climbing the hill sees you and stops. He glares at you as you're watching him and starts to rise up in the air. Into the air? Just a moment here. Friend, you continue casting the scroll spell with great worry because you know that it's a very powerful spell. There's a chance you'll really mess it up trying to do this. How far away is this rising figure? Is he within range of my magic? It's only about 40 or 50 yards. I'm slinging, getting the sling going around, ready to release the bullet at any moment. How far is he? 40 yards, it seems. He's easily shootable with a bow. Are you ready to start your spell, Ruth? Let us commence. And you, Ren, successfully finished casting this magical scroll spell to turn the statue back to flesh as the cleric starts casting her spell against the intruder with a peaked hat. I'll put this vile miscreant under the thrall of my deity. The thief readies his sling. But he can't see me. I'm in the cave entrance. And the ranger readies a bow. Yes, yes, indeed. But me, Yumpa. As the elf Wren finishes the scroll spell, he stands back looking at the statue, which magically becomes surrounded by little dancing lights. Suddenly, there before you is this apparently half-elven figure, oh. wearing no armor, but wearing strips of leather on his wrist. Oh, racers of defense. With a beard and so forth. He's a very serious-looking character who says, 
Halts! My goodness, who are you? And where's Quincy? Quincy, of course, signed the note. He's the assistant mayor. Yes, we remember all too well. Well, I think this guy's awfully cute. What's going on? Ruth, are you aiming your magic at the guy with the peak hat? Indeed. Keeps flying up. Oh, Ruth, he continues rising up in the air. His hands are moving as if to cast a spell. Friends, we've got trouble. I point and cast another spell. Which is? Charm person. Ruth, your spell is? This guy, who is just a statue, says, What's going on? He sees a spell casting going on here, there, and everywhere, and then he starts spell casting and pulls something from his belt. Ears, use your arrow, quickly. You shoot an arrow at the intruder ears, and it heads right for him, but suddenly bounces off something in midair in front of him, which seems to magically protect him. Uh, protection from missiles. And your slingshot, Ardale, likewise seems to be magically deflected without ever touching him. How close is he now? He's 40, 50 yards away. He's about 40 yards. I know what I'm going to do. Instead of my bullet, I'm going to sling my ink bottle at that invisible shield. It will, of course, break. <laughs> Interesting, huh? So you're throwing an ink bottle. However, before you do that, this strange gentleman who was the statue apparently finishes his spell and throws a small ball straight at the intruder in the peaked hat. Did I finish mine before? The third level spell mine was. I think you'll get yours off right after this. Okay, fine. Suddenly, there's an explosion as the figure in midair is surrounded by a ball of fire that just completely obscures your view of it. You finish your charm spell, Ren, and cast it at the rather toasted-looking character there floating in midair. However, it doesn't appear to have any effect, except to scare him, or maybe the fireball did that. But in any event, he turns and starts heading off away from all of you, flying away in the air. That was a strange character. Do I have enough time to get an arrow shot at him? After casting his magical spell, this previous statue says, I don't think we need to worry about him. But he'll be back someday. Can I shoot an arrow? You can shoot an arrow if you wish. We had heard about your fate, sorry one. And we came to save you, and we'll take you back. I'll show him the note. See this ring? Yes, yes. That's Quincy's ring. Apparently, the assistant mayor needs your help. Oh, he's assistant mayor now, huh? <laughs> well, indeed, let's head back to town post-haste. Indeed. Uh, you wouldn't be leaving anything behind. I mean, I'll help you carry your treasure. <laughs> he chuckles a bit and says, Indeed, I know many persuasive thieves. Uh, what did you folks do to rescue me? And you tell him about how he was a statue hidden away underneath many larger ones in a very dangerous lair of basilisks. And he shudders at the very prospect and says, Well then, how long have I been petrified? You tell him that it's been about two or three years, according to what the assistant mayor said, and he says, dear me, dear me, yes, well, definitely we'll have to head back to town. So your mission is completed and sure to be square, at least with the assistant mayor. We return post-haste to our horses and from thence to the town to rip up those little pieces of paper that the assistant mayor proffers to us. And you gleefully cancel your indebtedness to the assistant mayor. And there is no reward? No, as a matter of fact, the person you rescued turns out to be a former high-level fighter who had changed to magic using as a profession prior to being turned into stone. <laughs> 
I knew he was cute and clever. And he rewards you fairly handsomely, giving each of you a 1,500 gold piece reward. Hmm, I just uh, might make a play for him. Oh, ears, how like you. Ears, he'll probably go out to dinner with you, perhaps in another adventure. And so another difficult task, but interesting adventure nonetheless, is over with. I'm going back to the inn. Now that I have some money to spend, there's good food to eat and beer to drink. I'm returning to my sanctuary and donate some of my money to our good church. There are poor in town who need food and drink. Rand, of course, is still grumbling about having to use up that marvelous scroll. Grumbling forever and ever. And you all relax and wait for more adventures to come your way. We certainly hope you've enjoyed our episode of the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Adventure. My, my. As you can well imagine, anything and everything happens in the world of Greyhawk. Join us next time for another story led by our Dungeon Master. Cast for this adventure included Ron McAdam as Morley, Mary Skoll as Ears, Robert Jones as Wren, Linda Kimbrough as Ruth, Jim Parks as Ardale, and myself, Reed Farrell, as Dungeon Master. Throughout the weeks to come, you'll meet new characters, in addition to those who return now and then. Until next time, ta-ta! All right, so that was uh, the D&D radio show pilot produced in 1982 by TSR. What did you guys think? <laughs> it's That's fascinating. Good. I mean, yeah, it, it's hard for me to, you know, sort things like this into what I like and what I don't like. It's something I study, right? And yeah. so, I mean, I, I think it's remarkable, again, the, the foresight that they demonstrated and recognized and actually showing a play report like this with all of its quirks, right? It's, it's, it's not just the, um, you know, a smoothed out version of play it's lots of like messy questions pcs do crazy inappropriate things and the dm often has to kind of try to corral them um and 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 draw them out and into the game those are the things that that are so fascinating to me about it, how how unpolished it is in some respects yeah i agree i think it, it did a good job of showing that a dnd session is an imperfect thing uh, you know that there's no you know direct you know, uh, a tie-in to everything that happens in the first few minutes to the end. Like, I feel like if it was an overproduced 30-minute radio show, it would, you know, all the details would tie in and it would all make sense and get resolved at the end. And at the end of this, I kind of feel like, oh, all right, well, that was a mediocre adventure. <laughs> you know, you're not really sure. <laughs> Just what every marketer strives for. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you know, Mediocre. Because, you know, at the, by the end, they don't really... I, I was waiting for the big, you know, reveal of something like there's they, they talk about a character in a peaked hat a lot and then he just kind of leaves. Uh, and I thought that was, I wanted there to be some well, kind of story reveal. Maybe there was going to be like weren't intended to be future episodes, I would imagine. I think so. Yeah. So he would come. Oh, back. yeah. Certainly the intention so. was to serialize this and to come back week after week. We would follow Ren and Ears and Ardale and Ruth on their their subsequent adventures with that. That's whoever that shady figure was and right. they get to the eventually. But you do bring up that, ca I love this cast of characters yeah. as well. Uh, and uh, this is something that you mentioned in your in your commentary on this when you when you were showing this, but it is, it's interesting that it was, you know, uh, gender equal uh, pretty know. much. I know, see again, the foresight. Yeah, 
I mean, you didn't hear a lot about uh, uh, women playing D&D in the early days. Uh, and uh, and here they are putting their best foot forward you know, yep. from the beginning. And I really actually really liked uh, uh, the characters, uh, the way that Ruth and Ears were portrayed. Ears being like, you know, at the end, be like, oh, I think he's really cute. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I, well, I'm sure that the player must have originally said that, right? Yeah. That they, they would fill that in. You know, I mean, it, it is fascinating because, I mean, they. it's important to understand before D&D came out, insofar as there was kind of a gaming hobby, it was like overwhelmingly male. Like all of the best statistics we have up to even like 1975 suggest that among people that played these these simulation games, female participation was like less than 1%, right. uh, maybe half of a percent. And certainly D&D changed that. Um, it changed it pretty quickly. Even by 1977, you know, TSR's internal stats suggested it was closer to like 10%. And, you know, so you, you kind of see this push for inclusivity. Now, there, there was often, um, I'd say, missteps in the way that uh, the designers and the company originally tried to figure out how to include um, women explicitly in the game. Um, some of the early character classes that were presented, for example, w- you know, are almost laughably misogynistic in retrospect. Yeah. But I mean, I think this shows kind of by this point in the fad and make a mistake, this is the peak of the D&D fad. This is when D&D was, you know, was in E.T., right? This right. is when D&D was, you know, uh, suddenly the company was doing, you know, 25, 30 million dollars of business a year. And the people running it had absolutely no idea what to do in the face of that. Um, <laughs> They really wanted to market this uh, to as broad a community as possible, and that having gender balance in this um, is definitely a component of that. I agree. I agree. And I also wanted to, to call out how funny this was. And I'm not sure if it was, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like if you if you got a bunch of writers together and and told them to write a funny D and D session, it wouldn't be funny. Uh, but for some reason, as you said, they they modeled this after a real a real play session. Um, it really worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were definitely parts, especially with Ren, right, where I, I laughed. Yeah. I, I laughed out loud. The one that <laughs> called it was the, in the beginning, where he's like, uh, when the dungeon master talks about uh, uh, um, ghetto types or something like that. Uh, or yeah, he's like, oh, and other other unsavory characters and ghetto types. He's like, ghetto types. Those are peers. <laughs> 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 How dare you call them something like that? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Well, and everything Ren does must be done quickly and meticulously. Yeah. Um, he's, he's very, very clear about that. <laughs> and um, I mean, my favorite, though, my favorite episode in the whole thing is him with the Sturge, right? Yes. That whole sequence, because this this is just the kind of thing only a PC would think, okay, we captured this Sturge. I'm going to make it my pet. <laughs> inevitably, this leads to all kinds of disasters, the things squealing in the night, attracting you know more foes to them. And um yeah, you know, just the kinds of ill-advised things that PCs do um, are such a such a fun part of the game. Yeah, it's a <laughs> dealing great with that, you know, the party dynamics that raises. So I um and and but yeah, again, you can't you couldn't teach that that's a part of the fun of D and D without something like this, without basically game spectatorship. Right, right, and I think before um, you know this was produced, the only way that uh, the D and D creators could get across what a real play session was like was in text and and that first you know i don't remember the old dmg has like a two-page spread of 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 what a play session is like and it's written like a script um Mm. but it's a really poor representation of what it's like because it's like okay here's what the the mechanics are and how they work and and you know it, it has some of the the call and return you know that a dungeon master would have with his players 
but it doesn't really bring it to life, you know. And I, I could tell that they were struggling with how to do that. And uh, uh, this this actually did really well in in, in figuring that out because like like you're that episode with the uh, episode or that portion of the of the show with the sturge like. I had forgotten even that it was a sturge. And they're like, he just called it his bird from then on. He's like, oh, I really hate that bird. <laughs> and it's, you're right. That's something that would be so ridiculous. But I could see a player doing that right now. And like it shows in, good examples of how a dungeon master handles those types of right. those PCs, those things in game. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, the dungeon I mean, master kind of indulges a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think he asks Ears because Ears is complaining about the Sturge. He's he's like, well, is there anything in particular you might like to do about that before you sleep? Like, you know, kind of giving Ears the opportunity to be like, yeah, I killed that thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you kind of like have to engage the players a bit with it. And uh, I love the way they do that. Yeah, and I love the name Ears. Yeah, Ears is a good name. <laughs> it's a good name. Yeah. No dwarf, though. I thought that was there was elf, half elf and uh, two humans. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe there would have been a dwarf in, in later episodes would have yeah. joined the party and would have been an irascible, um, reckless influence on their adventures. We'll never know, though, unfortunately. We'll exactly. never know. Maybe maybe we should produce a, a sequel to this uh, this yeah, episode. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Shelly, you can you can be ears. Okay. Oh God. Um, yeah, I mean, this is one of the, you know, I, I remember when we found that uh, the script for the 1982 D&D movie um, and I read through it and kind of made my assessment of how well they done with that. Yeah, I think my comment to like Mike Morales was, you know, probably you guys don't need this for any future movie <laughs> you might be developing. You know, you could probably do better than this. Um, Maybe it's an example of what not to do. Yeah, it's the I'd only so way. I'd so love to yeah, see exactly. that. <laughs> I'd love it. I don't know. I feel like like every now and again we get... We got a big shipment of stuff. This might have been before you, Tito, but mm-hmm. from the the warehouse, TSR's warehouse, like the remaining boxes or something. And it was so much fun to go through them. I feel like TSR sometimes like just threw a bunch of stuff against the wall to see what would stick. They had their hands in everything, like the birthday party, D&D <laughs> birthday party stuff. And it was like all like pink and cute and... The Halloween costumes. Yeah, the Halloween costumes. <laughs> they are so good. It's hilarious. Um, some of it was good, like the action figures. Those are, those yeah. are cool. Um, but man, there was just tons of, st- oh, like uh, the, um, what's it called? For your, like the sheets and the comforter and all. Like It was like D&D everything mm-hmm. was out Each there. Each towels. Yeah. yeah. I mean, D&D stamped on any possible yep. branded project. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, their their licensing agreements for this, they turned out to be very profitable. I mean, obviously, they contracted with these these other firms to do a lot of these kind of licensed products at the time. Um, they were they were very eager to exploit exploit the brand as much as they could. Mm-hmm. And as it got popular in that phase, um, I mean, inevitably, uh, they, they, they would do that. And, you know, I mean, I guess it helps to tell part of the history of the game to see, see all of that, right, and to see what it was like at the height of, of that fad. And, of course, inevitably, it would never be sustainable, right? I mean, there was just that, that one moment when um, it reached that kind of apex of uh, cultural attention. And the fascinating thing is, though, that we see this then resurgence, right, today, I think in, in part sparked by how authentic and uh, personalized and kind of artisanal the tabletop experience can really be compared to some of the mass market right um, computer game experiences you can have I I love WoW right I was playing I played a lot of WoW from 2005 to 2006 me too but um, <laughs> you know 
there's there's just no replacement for let's get five people together around a table and let's tell the kind of story we want to tell. Mm-hmm. Right, and I wonder how the history would be different if instead of you know the the costumes and the bed sheets and yeah. the the action figures they had had invested in this radio show. Like right. I mean, I, I, I as we've all said, they you know this has kind of been a a, a weird predictor of where we are 25 years later, you know, no more, 35 years later, as far as, you know, the rise of Twitch and and video play being so popular now. If they had invested in that back then, you know, what if that became, uh, you know, they'd be like amateur-made radio shows in the late 80s based on this example. Can you imagine just bootleg tapes of, you know, your gameplay being yeah. circulated, you know, like like Grateful Dead concerts oh among my gosh, this, right. this crowd of people who just love it. Um, you got to hear this yeah. copy of this new group that's called Critical Role. <laughs> that's right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> They're so good. They're all so voice weird. actors. It's amazing. It's, it's unclear there would have been much money in it. And, you know, by, by 1982, um, at the time that they were looking at this, at the movie script, they were really starting to get overextended, right? Yeah. The, this was the point when TSR uh, bought that, that uh, needle point company, right? And, um, you know, they bought the assets of one of their main rivals in wargaming, SPI. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bought Amazing Stories magazine. They were, they were making a lot of high-profile acquisitions based on the assumption that D&D would just continue to grow and grow and grow forever. Yeah. And that turned out by 1983 is pretty clear that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, that, that kind of led to a reorganization of the company. But, you know, ultimately that led to Gary Gygax and people like that being ousted, right? Um, and to the the management really changing and the company becoming much more, I guess, um, much more focused on modest, I'd say, uh, goals in the gaming industry. And it's also, you know, it's hard to ignore to the uh, the backlash uh, in, in the press as far as, you know, the dangers of D&D and all that. I think that contributed a lot to not wanting to invest in everything all at once. Yeah, I mean, and you see in things like the, the LJ, uh, LRJ, deals the um uh the licensed things we were talking about they um they were definitely appealing to a younger audience and that i think unfortunately kind of amplified those sorts of concerns right if you're trying to get like little kids engaged in this maybe maybe that caused more of a uh, of a backlash from that community but at the same time you know that's a that's a double-edged sword there's no question that in 1979 the disappearance of James Dallas Egbert and the subsequent kind of you know concern that D&D was, was this cult right that if you played this game it made you go crazy and you would think you're somebody else and wander the steam tunnels and you go to your mind there, there's no question that that resulted in like a fourfold increase in D&D sales right, right? That, that, yeah. the promotion that that um, gave initially um, changed D&D from something that reached a very small hobby audience into something that was a mainstream phenomenon yeah. So, okay, this is a weird question for you, but I can't, as we're talking, I can't help but imagine what, okay, just hypothetically say, we just go away. There's no no more D&D for 50 years. And now the future John shows up and digs into the past of D&D, but the past being right now, the present. What do you think, like, what would be something totally random and funny from D&D today that you think an archivist would unearth 50 years from now and be like, what were they thinking? What is it? T-shirts? Coffee mugs? (laughs) People watching people play D&D? Greg Tito? What is this? Podcast? 
<laughs> I mean, I'd like to think that all those kind of more participatory or, or game spectatorship things, even um, they're, they're going to be very normalized. I suspect. I think they'll they'll be with us as long as kind of computer game culture is with us. Um, you know, I, it, it's tough to say what people would look at and would would think um, was a dead end today. I mean, that that seems to be kind of what what you're asking. Or maybe um, not. Maybe it's something very interesting. What would be? Yeah, I don't know. Because virtual reality I mean, so will be all the yeah, thing in 50 yeah. years from now. So. Or yeah, can you well, imagine the people actually like play D&D with people? Exactly. It'll all be AIs <laughs> playing with other AIs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's weird. You'll just spec- we'll be spectators of that. Yeah. They actually yeah, used yeah. minis as dragons instead of like real dragons. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say probably the thing that's going on right now that's most different probably is the recent shift in the way that um, the D&D rules are increasingly being articulated in, in this almost narrative form, right? Volo and things like that, like the introduction of these kind of characters that are describing the world, the world of beasts and things like that. Um, or, or even things like, you know, Matt Forbeck's new uh, Dungeonology, mm-hmm. um, things that are really kind of targeting... How, how to get, again, the young people involved by um, breaking the system down into these, these wonderful, fascinating pop-up books, right, with, yeah. with, uh, with things like that. that. That's something that's relatively new, I'd say, that um, it, at least people will, we'd look back on and say that that, that was a fascinating uh, development at this time. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So, um, you know, I really would love to know more about where this radio show came from. And uh, and why it didn't get made. So. Keep digging around. So yeah, we need, we need you to keep digging. <laughs> we need you to keep find out. So are I'm you are you this uh, like do you do the, the history of anything else like or, or or like is gaming pretty much your central focus? It's pretty much my central focus. I mean, not that I mean, it's I, not keeping you busy. I just sure. Well, th- things that are kind of peripheral to this story, like I study a lot about the history of computer games mm-hmm. um, in the 60s and 70s, because you can really, you can interrogate a lot of the same material where people wrote about their experiences with war games and role-playing games early on and see them also talking about computer games. So it was kind of an overlapping set of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I studied that a bit. I studied the history of monsters a bit. Um, oh, again, Going back into antiquity um, again to just try to understand better where all this came from, how these how these ancient legends right became the foes of gamers, and how kind of we've made those monsters in some ways like more real than they were. I think <laughs> back yeah. in the day, like, how much we've specified them, how kind of taxonomically we've we've nailed them down in ways that was near, never nearly so exact back in the day. And that's interesting too, because we—I've been delving into that with uh, with Chris Perkins and uh, Matt Cernet in talking uh, through the lore of you know D and D monsters specifically. But you know, like for example, when we talked about orcs, you know, I was like, well, what what is it about D and D orcs? There are many different versions of what you may think of as an orc, and you know, they're all very specific, not mm-hmm. only for you know from modern times to to a- antique times, but through you know different properties that are happening right now and how different people you know think about them. Yeah, and kobolds or you know gnomes, things that have uh, have uh, basis in myth. But you're right, had, didn't have a lot of details to them. It was like, ah, this is kind of a picture. They may have had hair on their chins. You know, that's about, <laughs> right. that's about it. That's right. the only details we really know. <laughs> right, right. But we have well, pages and pages of archived, you know, statistics for them. That's right. I mean, again, we we understand them, I think, better than anyone has in the past today. It's a, almost a scientific process of exploration, just an exploration of something that, that doesn't happen to be real. 
Yeah, that'd be really this fascinating. This sounds like another book, John. It really does. Oh, I mean, maybe I'm talking about things that I'm kind of eyeing as potential Mr. projects. Monsters. Yes. Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. Pre-order that today. I love that. We'll call it Volo's Guide to Monsters. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dang the it. history of Volo's Guide to Monsters. The history of Volo's Guide to Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Awesome. Well, is. thank you so much uh, uh, for taking the time to come in and talk to us, John. It was uh, really fascinating, and thank you for digging up this tape. And yeah, and all the work that you do. And uh, oh, thank you. I mean, and again, um, from my perspective, you know, when I found this, I really um, wanted to be able to make the whole thing available to the community, and I'm really grateful that Wizards is going to put this up and make it available. So, thank you. No problemo. Uh, that's what we do here. We make we make audio happen. <laughs> I, that's what Ryan does. As I look to the yeah, ultimately <laughs> look to Ryan. He's like, I got this, no problem. Yeah, and uh, and just so you guys know, uh, we did, uh, you know, because it was an audio cassette from the 1980s, uh, so All there right. was some degradation of the uh, the audio quality, and uh, we tip our hats to Ryan Marth for for making it a little bit better. Slow clap, Ryan. Slow clap. You could still hear. <laughs> you could still hear that it's got some some idiosyncrasies of being an audio cassette. Uh, you might it's hear. It's a cassette. It. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you even find a cassette player to play this thing? <laughs> oh, I, I had to go on Amazon. Or <laughs> I found uh, you know twenty dollar whatever uh, wow. little little boombox. Um, yeah. Nice. Oh my gosh, you had a you. I still. I mean, I guess I it's still like have your, an audio uh, your cassette. Twitter thing. profile. Don't you have the? I do. Say anything? I do have that. I actually own a VCR too. You do? I do. <laughs> that I bought right, on Amazon cool. like well, ten years ago. John, if you unearth any uh, VHS tapes yeah. of people playing D and D, send them to Greg Tito. I'm the only person who has a VHS. You really uh, are. VCR I anyway. have VHS tapes though at home. Sweet. I like want to watch all of those. Like old home movies that my brother and I probably me doing my one woman Mommy Dearest show. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> archiving. And then we'll send that to John so he can... <laughs> yep, put that yeah, in your collection, We'll preserve John. that one, Shelley, for posterity. Thank yes, you. thank you. In 50 years, the future John's going to find that. <laughs> and he's going to think right. it's awesome. The famous Shelley Mazenoble. <laughs> With the one-woman show. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, uh, where can people find uh, your, your work? You mentioned your book. Yep. I have a blog as well that's called Playing at the World. That's a good place to start. You Google it, you'll find it. Excellent. Are you on uh, uh, Twitters or any other social media? I'm on the Twitters. Yeah, my Twitter is a uh, Docetist on Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm easy to find. You'll find me. Awesome. All right. All well, right. thanks, John, and uh, thanks, stay in you. touch. If you find any any good gems, uh, we'll have you on again. Yeah, we'll do. All right, and thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Oh, it's so great. I, that radio show was really kind of amazing. I know. Yeah. I wish they did more. I think we should do one of our own. Yeah. We'll incorporate some of the Mommy Dearest stuff in there. We're doing it. We're, kind of, we're doing a radio show right now. No, no wire I mean, hangers <laughs> ever. In Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. We're going to do it. You turned it into a musical yeah. theater. Ooh. D&D, the musical. I think we'll have to talk to Lin-Manuel Miranda about making this for us. Well, okay. Well, now that people are boycotting Hamilton, he's got time. <laughs> now is the time to do it. We almost got through an entire week without any political discussion. Oh, shoot. Way to go, shall I? It's not, it's just news. It's not. Political. It's just happening. It's happening. Uh, so you can complain about us on iTunes uh, and or give us a rating. Uh, probably pretty high. Probably if you can, that'd be good. High. It gets other people to know about all the wonderful work uh, that uh, <laughs> Ryan and Shelly do and all the crappy work that I do. Yep. Uh, so Definitely make sure you want more people to know that. Make sure you call that out on the iTunes or anywhere that you would review podcasts. 
but iTunes helps because it you know definitely makes more people aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find out anything about Dungeons and Dragons at DungeonsandDragons.com. We also have a app, yeah, Dragon Plus. Uh, an issue came out last month, which is fantastic. It was the first one completely edited by Bart Carroll. Aw, and, special. Uh, it's got an interesting cover of a uh, cover image of a pumpkin carved. Yeah, look the covers like. of Dragon Plus are really cool. They're really amazing. Yeah. You should go check that out yeah. uh, if you haven't already. That's gross. That, this cover was kind of gross. It was kind of gross. I love that they use the pumpkin bits in the middle uh. to be the entrails of the halfling that's being eaten yes. by the jo- You just have to see it. Yeah. I'm, my words describing it are pale in comparison yeah. to the throw up you have when looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find uh, me. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Greg Tito. I'm can, at Shelly Moo. Yep. And you can complain to Shelly as well, but not to me, uh, about all the things that you like about the world. Oh, and uh, w- uh, the Wizards Twitter account is at Wizards underscore DND. So go ahead and check that out as well. Mm-hmm. There's always fun news happening. And again, if you're in the LA area on December 5th, sign up for the Eventbrite listing. Oh, yeah. uh, it's on DungeonsandDragons.com. But you're going to have an audience? Yeah, fans so can, anyone can, can be going. Yeah, and it's totally free. Uh, only just limited space. I think there's, you know, how many seats are in the theater. So Oh, come on, go people. Sign go. Up. You can meet Greg Tito. You can meet me. I'll be there. And uh, maybe you can even, you know, watch an amazing show. Oh, and, and that. And that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so go ahead and do that, and you'll. Uh, and then if not, you can always stream it. If you're not in the LA area, everyone else will be able to stream it. We'll be on many, many ways to stream. It'll be on Twitch. It'll be on probably Facebook and Twitter, as well doing. as YouTube. You can watch it that way. Mm-hmm. And then even if you can't make it on December 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, we would love you to uh, check it out in video on demand. We'll be putting it up later, so you, cool. it won't be missed. You'll be able to check it out. And, of course, if you want all of the story leading up to this event... Force Gray is available on the Nerdist YouTube channel. Go watch it all. There's seven episodes. It'll get you all caught up for what's going to happen on December 5th. You'll be ready. All right. I think that's everything. Sounds right? good to me. All right. Let's call it a day. All right. I'm going to go have some turkey. Have fun. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. I'm going to have some tofurkey. Have some tofurkey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have uh, some high fives for you. All right. Bye-bye.